From Schwartz Media, I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. Mining giant Rio Tinto's destruction of the Dukan Gorge Caves sparked a global backlash and refocused debate over the relationship between traditional owners, large corporations and the government. Now, a parliamentary inquiry is exploring what needs to change to stop something like the Dukan Caves explosion from happening again. Today, national correspondent for the Saturday paper, Mike Seckham, on how the system locks out traditional owners and the cross-party alliance of federal politicians agitating for reform. Mike, in May this year, mining company Rio Tinto destroyed a cave at Jukan Gorge in Western Australia. Can you start by telling me about the significance of that site? Well, uh, the cave was one of the most archaeologically significant sites in Australia and, and probably the world. They'd been occupied by the forebears of the traditional owners, the PKKP people, for 43,000 years. Some 7,400 artefacts were found at the site, including a belt made of human hair, which was 4,000 years old and which genetic testing showed came from the ancestors of the current traditional owners. So, tremendously significant. But of course, as the world now knows, on May 24 this year... One of the rarest archaeological sites in Australia destroyed. The mining company, Rio Tinto, destroyed the cave using explosives. Rio Tinto blew up ancient Aboriginal rock shelters at Jugan Gorge in May to get access to high-grade iron ore. The blast destroyed the most significant of the sites, probably completely, we don't know, they're trying to sort of dig it out and see if anything's left, uh, and substantially destroyed a second, also very important site. Traditional owners were devastated and there was widespread public outrage. The mining there shouldn't have been a peer blast in this area because of what was here chose to show how much respect the mining company got for people in the country. The blast sparked a global backlash. The cultural significance of the Duke and Gorge caves shouldn't be underestimated. Uh, the site has been described by archaeologists as home to the dawning of humanity. It dates back... Eventually, the blast took with it also the careers of three of Rio's senior executives. Jean-Sebastian Jacques, Rio Tinto's chief executive, will step down. Uh, the statement that Rio Tinto has made to the stock exchange says that uh, that has been decided by mutual agreement. Now, And put a huge hole in the miners' corporate reputation. And it also prompted a parliamentary inquiry. This is a very serious inquiry. We have not undertaken this lightly. We have undertaken it because there has been so much reaction uh, to the destruction of cultural heritage. OK, so, Mike, a lot has happened since that blast, but let's talk a bit about this inquiry. It's been holding sessions for the past few months. So who is involved in it and what sorts of questions are they asking? Well... The inquiry is interesting because it's it's cross-parliamentary and encompasses a, a very wide ideological range, I might say. It has two Labor members, Pat Dodson and Warren Snowden. Uh, it has, from the Greens, Rachel Seward. Uh, the chair is Warren Inch. He's a Liberal. And the interesting thing about it is that all of them appear to be outraged. So Rio, they've done something horrendous. They deliberately 
effectively, deliberately blew up these caves. It seems despots on the spine just talking about it, really. Yeah. You know, like, that's their land. What was really interesting, though, was Warren Ench's perspective because he told me that before the inquiry began, he was, quote, ambivalent, unquote, about what had happened there. When I first read it, you know, you you assumed that the TOs had signed it off. They'd obviously got paid a bucket load of money and, uh, and now they were complaining about it, but nothing could be further from the truth. Right. After seeing what he's seen and hearing firsthand what has happened... He was just outraged. This is, this is a historical site that belongs to every single Australian. It belongs to the world. And I've got to say to you, as an Australian, I am absolutely outraged that they think it's okay to destroy this bit of history. And the more he sees about of this, the more outraged he gets. Okay, so what exactly is it that's outraging Warren Ench and, and others in this way? What is the inquiry learning about the decisions that led up to the destruction of the Jukun Gorge caves? Well, first thing that needs to be said is that the PKK had every reason to believe that their heritage site was safe. In 2013, Rio's then chief executive, Sam Walsh, gave an assurance that Jukun wouldn't be touched. The same year, Rio funded the archaeological survey that collected those 7,400 artefacts that I've mentioned. We are sad that we weren't able to stop this mining from going ahead. The company even made a documentary that featured the PKK people and highlighted the significance of those rock shelters. But we hope this film will be there for the young Gurama people so they can see and understand why this place was and is important for us. So the mining company gave every indication that it was serious about not only preserving Aboriginal cultural heritage, but also it being, you know, uh, being seen to be responsible in its management. Despite this fact, despite the fact that PKK people hold native title over Jukin Gorge and the giant iron ore mine for which the caves were destroyed, and despite 43,000 years of occupation and 4,000 years of DNA-demonstrated connection to country, Ench told me that they, like other native title holders in Western Australia, don't actually own a square metre of the land. And it's all perfectly legal under West Australia's, ironically named, I must say, Aboriginal Heritage Act, which was passed almost 50 years ago. How so? How is that legal, Mike? Can you tell me a bit about the Aboriginal Heritage Act? Sure. Under Section 17 of the Act, it is made a crime to, quote, excavate, destroy, damage, conceal, or in any way alter an Aboriginal site. And that sounds pretty tough and pretty cast iron. But then if you go under Section 18, there's there's a get-out-of-jail-free card that any landholder may apply for an exemption from Section 17 at any time, as, as many mining companies do regularly and as Rio had done in Jukin. So Rachel Seawood told me that under the legislation, the traditional owners can't appeal. They did have concerns, but of course under our legislation, you're probably aware, you know, TOs aren't allowed to can't appeal. And the so anyway, this, this was one big factor in the destruction of Jukin. Another was a so-called participation agreement between the native title holders and the company, which prevented them from taking any action under federal law that might override the WA legislation. Participation agreements they had with Rio meant that they have what, what you know what we were calling gag clauses, where they can't use the various acts. That you know they can't use the Racial Discrimination Act. They could 
they couldn't go to the Environmental Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act. They couldn't use the Heritage Act to complain. Essentially, you know, they, they were they were condemned to silence by this this agreement that they'd signed. So, so basically, the message that I'm also, you know, like I'm strongly picking up from people is that we can't get access to our country. We're being locked out of our country by these mining leases. And this is interesting because while the um, the legislation that I mentioned is is unique to Western Australia. Versions of that approach are proliferating all across Australia and taken in conjunction with sort of the weakened native title framework, making it easier for huge corporations working with governments to destroy Aboriginal heritage, essentially to dispossess them all over again. We'll be back in a moment. As a a 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read POST, a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day, summarising each of their key points. Sign up today at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. For Sloane Crosley, writing about the loss of a friend may not have provided catharsis, but it did allow for the possibility of a better ending. Like you have this amazing meal that's this friendship and then you have a really, 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 really bad dessert with shards of glass in it. And then like the book is like, you know, those little chunks of chocolate that come with the bill. I'm Michael Williams. Join me for this week's episode of Read This as I talk to Sloane Crosley about her latest Grief is for People. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Mike, let's talk a bit more about native title. It's a legal mechanism that's supposed to enshrine the rights of traditional owners to the land that they're connected to. But as you say, it's becoming weakened. So can you tell me how it is that native title isn't able to protect sites like Jukin from destruction? Well, it's a, it's a good question. And, and I've got to say, I think the destruction of, of Jukin blew up any remaining notion that, that native title means much at all when it gets in the way of moneyed interests. According to Senator Pat Dodson, it never really meant anything in Western Australia and, and it's being, as he calls it, whittled away. So you're finding that the, the concept of collective ownership of land and collective decision-making is being rapidly taken away from the meaning of native title. Uh, uh. He, he talks about piecemeal changes to to legislation that give governments ever more power to direct the operations of Indigenous land corporations. And then, of course, smart lawyers for the big miners and the pastoralists who are are gradually carving away at this this fundamental concept of native title via these, you know, participation agreements, or which go by slightly different names in different jurisdictions, but essentially get native title holders to cede that title permanently or temporarily and, you know, essentially, in a lot of cases, give up access to their land. The, the, the law is moving away from what was found originally. And, and I think that this is, you know, a, a cause for some concern. And you also... um, so in Dodson's view, the uniqueness, as he calls it, of native title is rapidly being lost. He told me that the original conception of it, of collective ownership of land and collective decision-making by the native title holders is rapidly being taken away from the meaning of native title. There's enough material, I think, to see that this, the, the, 
nature of the act has been basically brought into disrepute by the by the capacity of those who are rich and powerful to manoeuvre it in a manner to suit their purposes. Okay, so Mike, the way that the law currently operates in terms of both native title and also specific laws around the protection of Aboriginal heritage did not stop the destruction of these caves, but the company is still facing consequences for what took place. So can you talk me through how that happened? Yeah, well, you're right. In in this particular case, um, Rio came under huge pressure, public pressure, once it hit the media, after after it was found out, you know, what had been destroyed when they detonated those e- explosives. Most interestingly, I think, is that to a large extent, this was driven by some of its biggest shareholders, in particular, industry superannuation funds. They were the ones who said that there had to be consequences, and it was their pressure that eventually forced Shark and his fellow executives out. One big union fund, Hester, which has $54 billion of assets under management, including about a quarter of a billion dollars in Rio shares and more than $2 billion in all mining companies across Australia, also appeared before Encher's committee. Uh, now, if I could invite you to make a, a brief opening statement before we proceed with the discussion. Thank you. Over to you, Esther. Thank you. Thank you, Chair. It's Mary Delahunty, and thank you to the members of the... And in its opening statement, the fund laid out its dissatisfaction with the current state of affairs, you know, both in relation to Rio's actions specifically, but also the broader approach of mining companies to native title. Is that rather than necessarily being company-specific, there are larger systemic issues relating to how the mining sector negotiates agreements with traditional owners. And Hester called for major reforms, quite sweeping reforms. It wanted an independent review of all agreements between companies and native title holders. It is imperative that they are reviewed to ensure they reflect contemporary, fair and equitable expectations. But it also wanted consistency across state and federal laws with clear national standards. So, in other words, it it wanted to ensure that maverick states like Western Australia, with this antiquated and appalling legislation that they have, were held to account at a federal level. Given that, Mike, given that it was investor pressure, not the law, that led to some kind of accountability, what is in place to stop something like this from happening again in the future with with Rio or with a, a different mining company? At the moment, legally, nothing. It could still happen and it probably is happening with other sites of lesser significance or less publicity around them. So... The destruction of Duke and can't be reversed, of course, but the focus should be on preventing another such catastrophe. It appears likely that the kind of reforms being called for by Hester are something the committee will recommend when it reports. Some members of the committee would like it to go further. Pat Dodson says, you know, the big issue here is is the way powerful vested interests have whittled away at native title. Which has almost got to the point where I, I, I'm starting to think that we there needs to be probably a royal commission into the operations of the Native Title Act because you've you've got... He thinks there should be a royal commission. I have to say, I don't like the chances of that. But something along the lines of what Hester is calling for, I think is very much on the cards, which is a a review of these, these participation agreements between big landholders and native title holders across the country, number one, And number two, some kind of nationally consistent legislative framework that will um, have the capacity to override the more maverick states like Western Australia. 
So I think that's what's likely to come out of the committee. We'll see. We can only hope that that change comes as a consequence. Mike, thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. Sloane Crosley is known for her funny and acerbic personal essays, but her new memoir digs much deeper to examine the loss of her best friend. Join me, Michael Williams, as I chat with Sloane about Grief is for People. Find it wherever you listen. Also in the news today, the South Australian government has announced that everyone who tests positive for coronavirus will be moved from quarantine hotels into a separate medical facility. The facility will be managed by police and security officers. In New South Wales, the Premier has announced a further easing of coronavirus restrictions from the 1st of December. Among the new rules, up to 50 people can be at an event at a person's home as long as the home has an outdoor space. And the Queensland border will open to Victoria on December 1, after Victoria recorded another day with no new coronavirus cases. I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. See you tomorrow.